I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following one-off teaching is about remembering the story to which disciples of Jesus belong, and as another year ends and a new one begins, where all of this is headed. Even primitive peoples kept calendars. In the ancient world, there were all kinds of different calendars. There was the Hebrew calendar, Egyptian, the Greek calendar, the Chinese, the Babylonians. Anywhere society has surfaced, advanced, or decidedly less so, so has a means of charting the passage of time, of anticipating the future with names and numbers, observing recurring dates and occasions and sacred seasons and religious celebrations and times of remembrance. The calendar in which you and I operate is actually a slight adaptation of the Roman calendar, and the transition from one year to another and the celebration of that transition is in many a sense an ancient, time-honored tradition by humans throughout the world. In my comparatively brief time on planet Earth, I have known the occasion of New Year's to carry with it the potential of new beginnings for a great many people. It's really arbitrary, you know, at the end of the day, the idea of resolutions is something that happens when a year switches over. Why? Just do them anytime, who cares? An old year dies, a new one begins, and this is as good a time as any, some people say, to exchange bad habits for better ones, to eat healthier, or to set to work on a project long tucked away in hibernation. Life is, after all, series of ups and downs, successes and failures, ebb and flow, sameness and change, and on it goes until it doesn't. The annual cycle of reset will, of course, come to a close for each of us eventually. Next week, the plan is to begin a new series as a church. But tonight, I wanted to spend another holiday evening after many before it in something of a one-off. It's a conversation about beginnings and ends. Um, Lately, my kids have begun to ask questions about death, lots of them. And for a number of reasons, some obvious, others that will become, you know, apparent as we go on, answering questions like these can be complicated. Death is, we believe, as disciples of Jesus, God's enemy. It is a disastrous evil that bloomed from the cracks of a broken world that has been marred by sin. But at the same time, death is an inevitability. In life, we will experience the death of other people, and eventually we will all arrive at the same shore, the great equalizer that is death. So we, my wife Abby and I, we don't want to be ominous or secretive or cryptic, Uh, with our kids about death. We try and speak candidly with them about it in an age-appropriate way. So, you know, you you try to ride the line between honesty and deflection. Um, (laughs) This is a question my uh, eight-year-old son asked me the other morning when we were eating breakfast. Dad, will I die? And uh, I said, everyone dies. (laughs) And he goes, yeah, but will I? (laughs) And my answer was, probably not today. Um... (laughs) And then he said, where do you go when you die? Do you go straight to heaven as soon as you die? And I said, well, sort of. It's not just that my kids are small. It's that these questions and their answers are strange and ancient, and they can be scary and cosmic. But ultimately, for disciples of Jesus, the answers are all beautiful. If you live to be 100 years old, you will do so across the span of 5,200 weeks. So if you're 25 years old, you have 3,900 weeks left. And that's the generous estimate. But maybe you might die at 70, meaning you have 2,340 weeks 
remaining if you're 25 years old. The average life expectancy in the United States is actually 72.3, which is higher than some of South America and much lower than Australia and Canada. So if you want to live a long time, those are your countries to visit or I guess move to permanently. But maybe you or me will never reach that, you know, what some refer to as a ripe old age, and we will die as what others call all too young. And this information is, of course, not unique to the individual. We are all, in some sense, en route to a destination. You don't think I'm being funny or morbid or both with all this constant talk of death, but there's no way around the thing or its awfulness, so we, as Christians, can examine and deal with and even mock death because, and death doesn't know this, death does not have the final say in the story of the Bible. We are, we're letting death think that it's in the bag, that it won. And we're taking an awful beating from death. Some of you know this more than others. But that's not it. Because, of course, we are disciples of Jesus. And though there are inevitable similarities with you know, our worldview and some other worldviews, like any other person, we believe that we have ultimate truth. Everyone does. We think that we have objective morality. Everyone does. Like many religious worldviews, we have a God, a creator God, life after death. There is something, though, about our take on the future that is unique in all the world, and it comes after the end. Though the writings that have been compiled in the Bible were all drafted a very, very long time ago, the Bible offers a glimpse of the end from its ancient vantage. And while it's true that the story of scriptures becomes something of a tragedy only three chapters in, the story does not end as a tragedy. So let's read a little tonight. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. If you're new to the Bible, that's the very last book. Feel free to consult the table of contents because there's probably a glossary and an index and some maps back there. Um, I want to begin by framing the Bible, what we're about to read, as a story. It's not an encyclopedia of truth. It's not a scattered, disconnected, and decontextualized volume of doctrine, but primarily it is a story. The Bible does include historical archives. There's history in there. It does include doctrine. It does include teaching or discourse, but there's also poetry and lyrics. There's even something that we think is kind of like a play. But the vast majority of the text is actually narrative. The Bible is, we believe, a library of writings, both human and divine, that together tells a unified story which leads us to Jesus. And that library's narrative can be divided into six kind of chapters or movements, if you like. God establishes the kingdom and creates humanity in His image that they might share in His rule and reign over the good world He has created. Humanity, however, you know the story, they blow it, they rebel against the king in order to pursue their own kingdom on their own terms. But God, the lover, is unwilling to abandon his kingdom project, so he chooses a man, Abram, and his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, and then the, kingdom, or the people of Israel to join him in starting the kingdom over again to restore and, um, uh, res- restore and renew everything that's gone wrong. But if you know the story, Israel, like Adam and Eve, they all fail. And then eventually Jesus comes, succeeding where Adam and Eve and Israel, as well as you and I, have all failed, and God's kingdom is inaugurated once again. The mission mission to spread the kingdom to the world continues in the church. That's us, by the way. But of course, the story has an ending beyond us. 
See, this has been a hard thing for me to come to grips with in the adult years of my life as a disciple of Jesus. I was given in my childhood and adolescence a very personal pan-Christianity, kind of baked right out of the oven of American individualism. And it was all about me. The, the portrait I was given that it's about my personal salvation. It's about your personal Savior. It's about your personal spirituality, my personal relationship with God. These are not my sarcastic terms. These are the, uh, the kind of uh, vernacular we actually used. And then you get to reading the Bible, and you realize, huh, this seems to be about something much more than just me and my story and my salvation. So let's look at Revelation, which is one of the Bible's strangest books by far. And then we'll spend some time talking about how we understand the Bible's ending in the context of the Bible's story. You guys all right? You still with me tonight, even though it's a holiday weekend and all that? Peter, you all right over there? Did you bring your own Bible tonight? Look at that, man. Peter brought his Bible. What a Christian. Now, bit of background, the book that we call Revelation uh, was authored by one of Jesus' disciples named John. It might be the Apostle John who referred to himself famously as the disciple that Jesus loved. Very humble, love it. Uh, or it might be another John, we don't know. But this John has been exiled to the island of Patmos, and John is writing to a small community of Jesus' followers in Asia Minor who are suffering terribly beneath the heavy foot of Roman oppression. And to this oppressed band of disciples, the world was terrifying. It was big and evil. Everyone else had all the power. They were using it against disciples of Jesus. And they, these disciples of Jesus, had been left to face it all alone. It seemed like everything was falling apart. Chaos, civil unrest, political megalomania, injustice, oppression, conspiracy, religious exploitation, and total opposition to the way of Jesus. Nothing like our world today. Then, that was sarcasm. It's exactly, do you get that? You got that? Yeah, it's exactly the same. Then, on this island, John experienced this incredible vision about the persecution that the church was facing at that specific time and place. The bulk of John's writing in this letter deals with what was, for he and his audience, the present. And for us, it is the distant past. Now, most of us, I would wager, if you were given a paradigm for revelation growing up, inside the church or kind of outside the margins of the church, you were probably given the paradigm that Revelation is this prophetic scroll almost entirely concerned with the future, the end times. But Bible scholars argue that it's mostly about something that happened in the first century. But John's vision does include a little bit about the ultimate fate of the cosmos. So in drafting this letter to the persecuted disciples of Jesus, John reveals to his readers that tucked behind this empire, the empire of cruelty that loomed ominously over the church of the first century, was a being called the Satan, the great enemy and the great antagonist of the Bible story. Now, centuries beyond the Old Testament, Jesus' followers in the first century understood the old and previously unnamed snake who had first led Adam and Eve astray in the garden to be the devil himself, the adversary, the Satan. He was there in the beginning and his parade of death and destruction had continued all the way up until the time John was writing. It felt for the church in the first century as though the world was coming to an end. Again, nothing like today. For John, this little group of Christians in Asia Minor had been woven into this great cosmic spiritual battle as old as the universe itself. And to these shivering disciples of Jesus comes this letter of revelation, an apocalypse, which means kind of like an unveiling. Jesus will triumph, and his faithful followers will enjoy and share in that triumph 
Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Don't abandon ship. So now, with all that context in mind, let's look down at Revelation 21, where Jesus' ultimate victory comes to fruition. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, John writes, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. In ancient Hebrew thinking, the sea was kind of like a symbol for chaos and evil and unrest. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 6, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Then skip down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And look at the following chapter, beginning in uh, chapter 22, verse 3. This is great. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So obviously there's all kinds of poetic language and hyperbole, but the final two chapters of the Bible speak beautifully of the fate of of the cosmos, a world restored to the goodness of the garden, brimming with potential. Humanity reigns with God and in God's loving presence forever, and evil, evil suffering, and death are no more. Of course, the idea of ultimate recreation isn't exclusive to Revelation. We get several mentions of the fate of the cosmos throughout the Bible story, some brief, a few more detailed. One more time, turn to the left in your Bibles to Isaiah 65. Again, feel free to consult the table of contents. Isaiah 65. During this part of the story of Bible, the nation of Israel has failed and failed and failed until God allows them to be taken into exile by Babylon. And during that time, away from their home, oppressed by Babylon, a prophet called Isaiah speaks of a coming Messiah and even the destiny of all of mankind. So when you're in Isaiah 65, look beginning in verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. There's that language from Revelation. 
The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Skip down to verse 23. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This motif carries on through the New Testament authors. In Second Peter, you get But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Again, that language where righteousness dwells. Speaking of Jesus' return to his father, Luke writes in Acts, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Though this vision of new creation is the climactic conclusion of the last book of the Bible, Most of Revelation doesn't actually have much to say about the future at all. It was about something that was happening then to the church in the first century. And what it does offer the reader is a glimpse into God's purposes throughout history, purposes leading to this conclusion. There was a reason for that sarcasm earlier. You read about all that chaos and strife and political turmoil that was thousands of years in the past and now still seems like our present, and we can see these patterns of God's promise to restore and renew even in the chaos of our world. Regardless of your personal ultimate expiration date along the great timeline of world history, you and I and every person to die before us is en route to a cosmic destination. Now, before we end, before we get to the point of all this, let me just say something about the Bible's take on that journey, about the meta-narrative of Scripture and this idea of the Bible as a story. So a well-worn trope of uh, hero-centric or protagonist-driven fiction storytelling is the character arc. It's a term that refers to the journey of inner transformation of a given character over the course of his or her story. Now, in the Bible story, the protagonist is God, so they are already perfect in character and unchanging in that sense. God's character never changes from the story's outset. But God does experience a journey throughout the Bible story. For the sake of this analogy, imagine several great you know, characters of fiction. You've got Marty McFly, uh, John McClane. Harry Potter, Sarah Connor, uh, Rocky Balboa, Luke Skywalker. Now, in many stories like these, just think of each of these stories. Our protagonists are typically at the, from the story's outset. They're normal, likable, everyday people, but they're usually kind of down on their luck. They're in a bad place in their lives. They're simply not the type for whom everything always works out. That would be boring. And then they're confronted with an obstacle. And since we, the reader or viewer or whatever, since we like this character and we relate to them, their imperfections, that they're down on their luck, and we believe in them, we root for them. We want Luke to get off the moisture farm. We want Rocky to somehow be able to go the distance with Apollo Creed. And often our hero will eventually be brought to their lowest point when all seems lost and the audience leans forward, hoping against hope that they can overcome. And the story's drama, its conflict is born from our hero in the face of opposition and our genuine desire for their victory, whatever that is. 
In archetypal fiction, the hero often overcomes set odds and the world of the story is changed because of it. That is called an arc. In many of these stories, the hero or heroine is ultimately united with their love by the story's conclusion. Now, of course, the Bible, you know, obviously isn't Star Wars or Back to the Future, but there is something for us here about the journey of the hero that helps us wrap our heads around the arc of the Bible. The way our story begins is not with a down-and-out hero in the making, but with a hero of unimaginable power. God is already perfect, all the omnis, right when the story starts. In Genesis 1, God crafts the cosmos from chaos. He creates mankind in His image to share and rule over the world. And our hero, God, is introduced in this idyllic scene that very quickly transitions to conflict as the kingdom rebels against the king. And as the story continues, our hero doesn't always get his way and becomes increasingly frustrating as his project continues to spiral downward further and further from the portrait painted in Genesis 1 and the expectations there established. But even from these initial moments of decline, God promises right in the beginning a rescuer to come, a son of Eve who will crush the talking snake of Genesis 3, a hero who will overcome the enemy of death, though in the very earliest mention of this rescuer, all the way back in Genesis 3, it is said that the snake will strike the rescuer's heel. And the story moves along, humanity continues to crash and burn, there's no signs of this promised snake crusher, this hope for the world. Here's King David, he's a hero, a man after God's own heart. Is he going to be the one? Nope. Whoops, he's a murderer, he's a rapist. Is this next guy going to be the guy? Nope. Is this next guy going to be the guy? Nope. Things get so bad that the entire nation of Israel is in utter decline, and this horrifying empire of Babylon drives them in terror and agony from their home into exile. It's horrifying and very long part of the Bible. There's no kingdom, no king. The plan has failed. But then, in this season of hopelessness, this nutty group of people called prophets appear, and they haven't given up on hope of a coming king to restore the world to God's vision of a garden brimming with potential to share with humanity. And from there, the New Testament opens by introducing us to our hero in a new way, Jesus of Nazareth. Not a glorious king, not this bronzed warrior, but a refugee baby turned peasant stonemason and then self-taught rabbi in some obscure nowhere town called Nazareth. And if you know that story, Jesus, who's an actual person of history, is not unlike many archetypal heroes of fiction. We, the reader, are drawn to him, and yet not everything lines up for him. He isn't who we expect. Jesus, in spite of being loved by many and doing good for everyone, is also despised and rejected. He's poor, he's um, itinerant, has no home. Ultimately, he finds himself in what seems to be his lowest point when all is lost and he is executed as a criminal by the Roman Empire, an enemy of the state. And you, the reader, are thinking this is the king. But not unlike some of our best stories, that is not the ending. Our hero is raised from the dead. He defeats death in the process and is victorious on a cosmic scale. Jesus' resurrection from the dead foreshadows the resurrection of all the dead, and demonstrates his power and authority over death itself. In fact, the story ultimately concludes with our hero restoring the goodness and potential of the garden where our story began once and for all, defeating the talking snake once and for all, and our hero is united with his love once and for all. In this case, our hero's love happens to be us. 
His followers, people, the church, and He is united with them here on earth in a creation made new. Interestingly, Revelation does not offer a portrait of God's people suddenly transported out of the world to live a spiritual existence forever in a cloudy place called heaven. That's a very modern conception of the future of life after death. I would argue it's altogether mistaken. You can't actually find it in the Bible. And this is one reason that I often deliberate over words that I use to describe the future to my kids. The Bible, of course, does use the term heaven, but not, I would argue, to describe a place that you go when you die. In the Bible, heaven is often just the word for the sky, or sometimes it's kind of a surrogate word for God, as in Matthew's the kingdom of heaven is the same exact term as the kingdom of God. In other places, other places in the scriptures, heaven is just kind of God's dwelling place right now. It's God's space And it is, in that context, accessible to His people here and now, which is why Jesus teaches His disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in what? Heaven, Heaven, right. While it's true that those who are in Jesus and have died are, and I quote, absent from the body, present with God, this is something that in theology we call the intermediate state. The Bible does not understand this to be the ultimate destination of those who are, in the Bible's language, asleep. Think back to what we just read in Revelation. You may have noticed that there's no nation of disembodied spirits exiled to some space in the clouds. This, I would argue, is a worldview with its roots in kind of Platonic philosophy, not in the Bible. The Bible tells this really, really different story, one that scholar N.T. Wright describes as life after life after death. What popular culture often describes as heaven is not the end of the story. Our world made new, us living in it, in a renewed and repaired physical body is the end of the story. On the misunderstanding of an escape to heaven, Craig Bartholomew commented, John's depiction of salvation is not one of escape from earth into a spiritualized heaven where humans should dwell forever. Instead, John is shown and shows us in turn that salvation is the restoration of God's creation on a new earth. In this restored world, the redeemed of God will live in resurrected bodies within a renewed creation from which sin and its effects have been expunged. This is the kingdom that Christ's followers have already begun to enjoy and foretaste. To imagine humanity's role in creation as one of ultimate escape up to heaven renders the Bible's narrative kind of nonsensical. If our hope and future is to go somewhere else, The Bible is no longer a unique interpretation of universal history and of the world, and consequently, it no longer has much to say at all about humanity's active involvement in history right now. Indeed, if our story concludes in a spiritual escape, it is no longer unique in all the world. Only disciples of Jesus believe in bodily resurrection and in the entire world made new. That's how one story ends and a new one begins. Of course, even so, a tremendous amount of debate and disagreement surrounds the exact timing and sequence in regards to the end of the story, but all followers of Jesus agree on the following four elements. Jesus comes back, there's resurrection, there's judgment, and there's a new creation. As promised, the snake-crushing King Jesus will return, and like Jesus, every one of us will be resurrected from the dead. Jesus will judge the entire world, and this will be wonderful for some, horrifying for others. Some of us are, of course, uncomfortable imagining Jesus as the judge of the world, but it, 
is a reality clearly stated and reiterated many times over by Jesus Himself. I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Yikes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me you evildoers. Or this one from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, Jesus, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. The sheep, representative of Jesus' faithful followers, will inhabit the new kingdom and new heaven, new earth, and the goats, representative of those who um, willingly reject the way of Jesus, will go away to destruction or the second death. In Hebrew thinking, judgment was more than the simple foreboding courtroom paradigm that dominates much of our modern thinking about God's wrath and salvation. In the Bible, judgment is actually a good thing. Judgment is hope, the restoration of what the Hebrew authors called shalom, goodness, wholeness, peace, completion. And destruction is more than just punishment. You were bad, so you get punished. It is the eradication of evil and of those unrepentantly resolved to do evil from God's healed world. Uh, uh, As one of my professors used to say about the eradication of evil, He used to tell us, I actually want God to judge and eradicate evil. I do not want to teach my children good touch, bad touch in the new heavens and the new earth. But in the story, the cosmos itself, the world that we know, will not be destroyed and made again from scratch. It will be restored or made new. This is an important distinction. It sounds like kind of uh, nitpicking, but... It implies a certain amount of continuity and familiarity of the good in the world that we know now and in the age to come, rather than this kind of incomprehensible world of clouds and harps and English worship music. No, thank you. Human beings are meant to enjoy God in the full and good context of life within God's creation now and in the age to come. When God set out to deal with sin and its ruinous consequences, He set out to destroy the enemy of creation, not to destroy creation itself. Creation will be redeemed, which means our world, plants, animals, oxygen, rocks, oceans, mountains, it was and is, in God's own words, good. And this restoration and redemption of the cosmos will be comprehensive in scale. The whole of humanity and creation itself will be purged of evil and suffering and death. Every wrong will be undone in both the context of humanity, the physical and spiritual realms, the environment, the animal kingdom, everything. A comprehensive redemption reminds us of the story in which we find ourselves, the broadness of it. So, yeah, another year is over. Where are we going? Often many of us lapse into an individualistic understanding of what we call salvation. Apart from the full creational and relational context in which we were created to live. And in that paradigm, the whole of the biblical story and the way we relate to Jesus revolve around me. Me and Jesus. Me and Jesus in heaven. And yet God intends to save and restore not me only but creation itself, my family, my church, the community, the people of God, the whole world. A comprehensive redemption also implies that human cultural development will be redeemed and work 
was good will carry on into the, age, into the age to come. We will be loosed to continue the work of stewarding and developing the world as God first saw fit, now finally released from the bondage of sin and death. And that is a wonderful story. For all the understandable and justified confusion surrounding the Bible, it is, at its heart, a clear and beautiful narrative. And it's actually a very familiar arc that speaks to the human condition. It answers our most existential dilemmas with beautiful resolve. And the trouble is getting to that conclusion. And trouble is called death. It is death who removes us from the story before it achieves resolution. And according to the entire story of Scripture, death is the consequence of rebellion against God, so we will die. All of us. And on our way there, another year we will have trouble. But disciples of Jesus commit the entirety of themselves, flawed, messy, screwed up though we may be, to the one who has conquered death. Only in Jesus are our hopes for human history, for the world, and for ourselves and those we love brought together in the future of God's coming kingdom. Thus, we can look to the future and find not an empty void, nor the darkness of death, nor some unimaginable utopia in which we will have no part. When we look to the future, we imagine and crave the return of the king, the day when evil and suffering are put out of creation for good. And in the words of Paul, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the complication in the story. The Satan who in the words of Jesus, comes to steal and kill and destroy, is the antagonist who rouses death. Ever since Genesis 3, sin and evil have run amok in God's creation, and the wages of sin is death. Most of us have spoken with death in ways big or small. We've been dragged over the broken glass of horrific tragedy, or we've simply scraped our knees and broken our bones. These small reminders of our frailty harbingers proclaiming that we are perishable and that one day a head that aches will become a brain that goes dark altogether. And in the story of the Bible, death is not God's plan. It's not His will. It's not His intent. It's not His best For followers of Jesus, death is an enemy, an enemy whose parade of affliction and misfortune and sorrow defy God. Death happens against God's will in rebellion and defiance of God's will. And one day, death itself will be brought to an end. This weekend, we began another year in our adapted Roman calendar. For some of you, the months behind us were anything but hopeful. Rather than joy, the year was replete with sorrow and anxiety and complication. And maybe others of you had a good year, marked by happiness. I venture a guess that for most of us, the year was something of a mixed bag. And to continue in my presumption, the year ahead will likely be much the same, good and bad. And when I imagined how we might spend this evening, I thought we might frame the night with hope and with perspective. Here we are. It's another year. It's been a really weird couple of years. This one seems like it's also going to be weird. Where are we going? On a night like tonight, before we set into a new year, why go on about revelation and life after death, new heavens and new earth, and the Bible story? Why go on about what makes that distinction so important? I remember uh, once while traveling many years ago, we stopped at a gas station, and uh, I don't know how many of you have traveled a great deal into all the kind of weird gas stations around this great nation of ours, 
They get really weird. And uh, behind a gas station somewhere in Southern California, some dude had a tiger in a fence. And uh, this tiger was just kind of roaming a little, I don't know, 10 square feet pen. I'm really bad with square footage. It was small, Peter. Really, really tiny. It was pathetic, and it was really disheartening. So we're standing back here looking at this tiger, and I'm talking to the guy, why do you got a tiger in a pen? I ordered this tiger. I got a hold of it. Now people come to my gas station. Well, that's, that's as good a reason as any, I suppose. And this other guy that I was traveling was standing beside me smoking a cigarette. I'm waving the cigarette out of my face as we look at this tiger. It's a de depressing scene, to say the least. <laughs> And uh, he takes a drag from his cigarette, and he said, and I quote, I always remember this, man, tigers are magnificent. And then he flipped the, flicked the cigarette butt away. And uh, this fellow friend of mine, this traveler with me, um, he said, uh, or, or I, I stopped him, I said, hey, man, gross. Don't just throw it. I mean, it's already pretty bad out here, this poor tiger. Now he's got to walk on your cigarette butt. Don't just throw your smoldering death stick on the ground. To which he shrugged and he said to me, again, this is a direct quote. He really said the thing, tigers are magnificent, which is a weird thing to say. And then he actually really said to me, world's going to burn anyway. And I thought for a moment, uh, me as a disciple of Jesus, maybe 19 years old at the time, I thought to myself, huh, isn't he right? What is the point? Does it matter that his cigarette butt is on the ground? Because that was the worldview in which I was raised. More than a personal escape to the clouds, more than God blows the world up, the world burns away, and we go to live in heaven with harps and roads, God's ultimate end is the complete and utter undoing of every wrong and every evil. God's ultimate purpose in creation is that the world He once created good will be utterly restored, a place in which on earth as it is in heaven is finally answered in full. The story of the Bible concludes with the portrait of the perfection of all human striving toward beauty and truth and goodness, a portrait of a world where every tear is wiped away, where every one of us knows God face to face and knows in full that we are, we are His and He is ours. That is the story of the Bible. The world is burning now, but it will not be consumed by the fires of death. This vision invites us to become responsible actors in God's story, no longer capable of running from the responsibilities and the agonies of human life. Instead, we all take our share in the struggles and the anguish of human history, and yet with confidence that what is committed to Jesus will find its place in the final kingdom. Last year, this year, next year. Our work in the meantime concerns not only things like spreading the gospel, bringing others into God's kingdom, but also the renewal of culture, the cultural mandate that opens the story of the Bible to rule and to reign as those who represent God to the world. It continues to apply. It never gets repealed. God has designed us, the church of Jesus, to be an instrument of renewal and reconciliation to all the world, not just in becoming missionaries and telling people about Jesus, but actually caring for our families and for our own lives and our own bodies, the environment, the animal kingdom, the church, the mission of God's people. That's why we started Van City. It's why we're here at all. And this is why we, as a church, set out to do the things that we do to practice the way of Jesus together. We are to live for the future, not wait for the future only. Why do the hard work of disciplined spiritual formation now if we will ultimately be brought to full completion on a coming day in the future? Why not just white-knuckle it and wait to be zapped? Why work? 
Why care for creation? Why learn and practice the way of Jesus now? Just to get out of a punishment? Just so we can go to the good place rather than the bad place? Why does Jesus have a way of life at all if all that matters is a one-off momentary incantation of inviting someone into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior? A formula never once mentioned in all of the scriptures. Because what you do today matters for the future. And suppose you have a very realistic ambition to move to some other place and inhabit some other home. Suppose that in all likelihood, this will surely come to pass, but it may be quite some time before it happens. You know that in five years, you're moving to a new state, you've got a house out there, and you're going to start a new job, whatever. You could, of course, ignore everything about your present state in order to hold out for the future. Do not invest in the people and things around you. Neglect your current home. Neglect yourself while you're there. After all, you're going somewhere else. Why care at all about today? Or you can set out to live with great purpose every day, making the most of the time, the relationships, the work to be done all around you every day. After all, much of what you do in this season will affect the next. It will change you, and it will change the world around you after you're gone. And I realize that analogy is crude, and most of us probably don't make a concentrated effort to neglect today in favor of tomorrow. But many of us, I would argue, do lack the paradigm in which our concern for the present and for the future live together with great meaningful purpose and hope. So the question to ask yourself is, how am I doing that? And what needs to change in my life? What will be my rule of life, the code by which I live, the way in which I organize my days and nights and weeks and years as a disciple of Jesus to live with meaningful foresight for the age to come in the here and now? You and I can never usher in the completion of God's kingdom ourselves. Only the return of King Jesus can bring that about. Our obedience, though, in the here and now matters. Our effort our worship, our good works, our faithfulness to Jesus matters. It changes us, it changes the people around us, it changes the environment of the world itself. No, we will not heal every hurt, nor correct every injustice, nor remove every evil, but we are called to become active participants in bringing God's reign and rule to earth now. We are ambassadors of the coming kingdom and we act as those ambassadors in our own unique little spheres of influence, our families, our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, acting as a sign of the kingdom yet to come in full. Why do that now? Because though sin and suffering and evil will be eliminated altogether in the future, they can all be pushed back today in your own life for your children and your families and your friends, your workplaces, your neighborhoods, the city on earth as it is in heaven. Let us long for the day of Jesus' return while living for that day with eager anticipation in the year to come. Three times in the final chapter of the final book of the story of God, Jesus repeats, I am coming soon. And John, Revelation's author, concludes his letter and the Bible itself with this, the only appropriate response, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Let me pray and invite God and His Spirit into our lives, into our communities, and into our city tonight, this week, and in the days and weeks to come. 
Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.